So have you ever had uh, the great pleasure of dealing with someone who was so right but handled it so wrong? And this is not an invitation for my family to speak up right now. Um, a few years ago, uh, Rachel and I had gone out to see a show. One of my high school kids that was in the edge group I was leading at the time was in this really great little folk group. He played stand-up bass, which was always amazing because he would lug this giant bass around with him even to edge and play. And we were was at this little coffee shop downtown and uh, we were there. Rachel was pregnant at the time with Maverick and she wanted a cup of tea and it's got this very extensive tea menu. If you've been to any of these places, it's very overwhelming. There's many different flavors. I don't even know what an agave nectar mint tea is, but I'm sure it's delightful. And so all these teas up there, she really wanted one, but you know, when you're pregnant, you're not supposed to have caffeine, right? Or at least limited amounts. So she was trying to be careful with it. So we go up to the front and uh, there is a very um, somewhat interested person working at the behind the counter um, looking at us and what do you want? And Rachel said, oh, well, there's a tea up there. This mint tea looks interesting. Is, is, it, is it decaffeinated? Does it have caffeine in it? And the girl just sort of looks at her and goes, it's herbal. Okay, great. We now know it's herbal, right? And that's it. That's all the question was, is it decaffeinated? Now, if you are a tea drinker, which some of you are, you may know that herbal tea does not have caffeine. You can look that up. I Googled it again this week to make sure that was right. But we did not know this. We just needed to know, is this going to have caffeine in it? Is it going to hurt the baby that's inside of Rachel right now? Um, if not. And so Rachel, if you know Rachel, is very sweet. She's a very nice person. And so in her sweetest Rachelness, kind of asked the, the woman, like, oh, oh, okay, um, but what I need to know is, does the tea, does it have caffeine in it? Because I'm pregnant, I'm trying not to have caffeine. And I kid you not, with the, probably the biggest eye roll I've ever seen, looks at her and goes, it's herbal. <laughs> so that was our night. Um, eventually, I just had, we got, got out of line. I Googled it to find out because she was not being helpful. There was not caffeine, and we were able to get it. But, you know, I, I think about that, and, like, we've all had experiences like that, right, where someone was right, but they just handled it so poorly that it turned you off to the whole experience. Probably won't go to that place again, even though it's herbal, and now I know that we can have it whenever we want. But it's not that far from home, right, because here's the thing, like, I do this all the time. This is me. I like to be right. And in fact, there was a motto I lived by for a long time, and I actually found a shirt with it on there. Uh, it's right here. We're going to throw it up on the screen. I'm never wrong. I once thought I was wrong. Turns out I was mistaken. Um, <laughs> I have said this on more than one occasion in my life. I kind of carried that with a bit of pride. It is probably the number one conflict producer in our home because I like to be right. Now, I'd like to blame that on my dad being an educator and liking trivia and tra training me to be correct, but I can't blame him. It's just me. It's my own thing. It's something I have to own up to. And as I've walked through the last couple of weeks, I've known that it hasn't changed anything yet, right, Rachel? Um, but I do have to own it. I like to be right. And I'm finding now that in this, it's even transferring down to the next generation. AJ is our oldest. She's eight the other day, just about a week ago, as I was kind of working on this. She's in the backyard, backyard, can't hear the doorbell, walks in, she says, Mommy, Daddy, the doorbell rang. Well, we're two feet from the doorbell. We're like, no, it didn't ring. It was the, it was the wind chime. She's like, no, the doorbell rang. Somebody's here. We're like, well, you, you, you're welcome to go check. She walks to the front door, which is kind of around the corner from the kitchen, which we can't see. She opens it, and we hear her have a conversation like, oh, hi, Aubrey, how are you? Come on in. And we're like, oh, that's interesting. Didn't know anybody was coming by. It's one of our neighbors. She walks to the kitchen. She's like, Aubrey's here, and just keeps walking to the backyard. Aubrey is not there. She has made up a conversation to not have to be wrong. <laughs> this is my fault. Um, sorry. Um, but this is not 
uncommon, right? We like to be right, and we live in a time where it's even more so. It feels even more pronounced now than ever. There's right, there's wrong. We carry our convictions very deeply. And, 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 I, and I know this can sound like a broken record because I feel like I say it so often, but we live in such a divided time. And I know it's been coming out of my mouth a lot but I, because I feel it. I feel it in every part of my day. When I wake up, when I turn on Facebook, whenever I turn on the news, it, you feel it. And it's not just me, everybody I'm talking to. Everybody's feeling this. It, it's the number one thing I hear from you when I have conversations. We live in a time that just feels broken. It feels divided. It feels like a time when we can barely have a conversation with those around us without fear of hurting someone's feelings, without fear of, of being incendiary, of, of causing some sort of flame war online. It is a time when beliefs are held so closely, yet we don't know how to talk through them. It's a hard time to talk about what we believe is true. And it's even hard to connect with other people. I have found myself stopping short a lot of times, either saying something I'm thinking or especially posting because I just don't know, even if it's something that seems so benign, like a happy picture of the family together, like, is that gonna hurt someone's feelings? Is that gonna say something that it's not supposed to say, right? We carry all of these things built in there. Like, what is this going to do to people around? And I think as followers of Jesus, there's an extra layer that becomes with this as well, because we follow a Jesus who espouses absolute truth. We looked at these statements in the beginning of the year where he said, I am, and these are not slippery statements that he can get out of. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not I am a way, I am the way. Jesus carries in himself very absolute truths about who he is and the path that he follows and what we're supposed to find. Yet we live in a world where truth is relevant, where there is no such thing as absolute truth, or where that is a thing that is looked down upon, and it can create all kinds of tensions. And I think, and the reason it comes out of my mouth so often and why I feel it so much, I think this is true because we feel all of those tensions. We feel them all over the place, and it's everywhere. It's online when we go there. It's, it's in our friend groups. It's at work at the water cooler, but it's even in our own families oftentimes. How do we have these conversations? How can we be right? How can we know something so deeply and yet handle it well? Uh, and those of us who are followers of Jesus, uh, we have in our hearts and our, our hands and our minds the most precious truth of all, the, the truth that there was a God who really came to earth, who really came on a rescue mission, who really gave his life, who really came back to life, who really offered hope to offer us life. We have this truth that's in us that we want to share so dearly with people but there's a danger in how we do that. There's a danger of being so right, but handling it so wrong. Today, we're gonna to be looking at John chapter eight of a story that many of us know, a story of a woman who's caught in adultery, and it's situated in an interesting place. Um, one of the things that we hope is you had a chance to do the reading plan this year, is to be able to get the, the picture for yourself. The reason that we really were pushing and continue to do so for you to read scripture is so that you will have the picture for yourself, you will have the broad view, that you will have context for what's going on. Because when you look at John chapter eight, it's in the middle of a couple of things. In John chapter seven, there's a long debate about who Jesus is. And then following the story through the rest of chapter eight is a long chapter where Jesus reveals who he is to the people around him. It's pretty heady stuff. There's a lot in it. There's a lot to parse out. Yet right in the middle, we find this story that puts it all on display, that puts a way for it to be really easily accessible to let it sink in. Now, before we get into it, um, if you are in your Bibles, if you've looked at this, you may notice at the beginning of this, there is an italicized portion or that this section, whole section is in italics and that there's a, you know, a little note at the top that says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have this particular story in there. 
And so why is that? Why is this section in dispute? Why is it in italics? Why is there a warning before it? And I don't want to bore you with too many of the details, but in the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel, believed to be from the first century, and that's the same century that Jesus walked on the earth, this passage isn't included in it. Now, we have very few pieces of the New Testament from the first century. Most of what we have is copies of the original documents or copies of copies. There was an oral tradition. Most of this was carried around campfires and shared verbally with person after person before it was captured down in writing and passed along. And um, if that makes you doubt the validity of the Bible, you should know that more than 99% of these various copies are in agreement and less than 1% of them are with variant readings. And, and no major doctrine of Christianity is affected in here. The differences are minor, and they're somewhat insignificant. And as far as historical documents go, the Bible is very well preserved. Now, scholars whom I trust say this conversation probably wasn't written by John. But it is a true account of a conversation Jesus had, and was probably written by another apostle, or possibly even Luke, uh, where some ancient manuscripts place this particular story. And it makes a lot of sense that it could be Luke that wrote this gospel account, because um, Luke constantly shows a countercultural way that Jesus dealt with women. And if you've been reading through the gospel plan, you probably have seen that as well. Um, but all that to say, I believe that the story is the word of God and that it is true, that it belongs here, and that's the way we're going to approach it today. So today, John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11, you can follow along in your phone, your Bible, and your bulletin if you have it. It says that Don, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. And I love this scene. It's early in the morning and Jesus is just sitting, teaching, people listening. It's just such a beautiful scene. I love that idea of Jesus as teacher and they're just gathered around in a circle. Can you imagine sitting in a circle with Jesus and learning from him and being present? I, I just am so, so fortunate that people had a chance to be there and people were crowded around learning from him. Verse three says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now I want to pause here before we get to the rest of this because it is very clear what's happened. Twice it says caught, caught in the act of. And if you can imagine a more shameful scene, I, I would be hard pressed to put it because caught in the midst of, they had to physically see what's happening. There is a trap being laid. There is so much wrong with the picture of what's happening. Even in the law that said for them to be able to bring someone forward, they would have to physically see what is happening in the midst of this. There's the idea that someone was viewing this most intimate moment. Though she was caught in the wrong, though all this was going on, there was someone there and they brought her, probably snatched from the middle of the scene, wrapped in whatever sheet or whatever she could find and, and hurried out into a group of men. And she knows the law because the rest of the law says this, and what they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So they did bring this woman who's been caught in the middle of the act out into public. She knows the penalty for this is death. Her life is in the balance. I mean, this is more than just shame. This is life and death. There is so much going on in the midst of the scene, and there's so much wrong as well. You see, in Leviticus 20.10, the, the law of Moses that they were quoting at this time says this, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Deuteronomy also says the same, both the man and the woman. Yet in this scene, very clearly, there is just the woman. Where's the man? Have they let him go? Was this a trap set all along so they could see Jesus? Whatever it is, they're only upholding half of the law at this point. They've not brought the full law here, the man and the woman that be put to death. They brought one. 
And she's standing there in the midst of her shame, in the midst of her fear, in the midst of whatever is going on in front of all of these people, in front of a group of people, in front of a group of people that have the power to kill and in fact have some of the law on their side. Verse six again, they said they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bends down and starts to write on the ground with his finger. It's interesting. We don't see Jesus doing this any other time in scriptures. Yet here he bends down and starts writing. And I've pictured this scene as I've tried to walk through this. One of the things that's been so fun about this year is to go back through these gospel stories and try to sit in the midst of them. To try to take the extra time to figure out what's going on. And to picture Jesus actually bending down, which I don't do so well anymore, right? Um, And just writing. And he's just there. And there's a lot of people that have gone on to try to figure out what he's written. And I've heard so many different talks and sermons where they're trying to guess what he's written. But I love that they don't talk about it. I love that there's no mention of what he's writing because I don't think what he's writing is important. Because here's the thing. He's taking the attention off. He's taking the heat off. And everybody starts to look towards him. Quick confession time. I love magic. Um, I'm sorry if you're judging me now. Um, But I do. And I've watched the shows where they teach how the magic tricks are done, but I love it. It does not matter how many times I know how someone does the trick. I am always blown away when they pull it off because I think I'm looking in the right direction every time they pull my attention to the other place and it continually blows me away. And I think, I think that's what Jesus is doing here because again, woman caught in the act, put on display, life on the line, and yet Jesus bends down. And if he's down there, all eyes are going to be trying to find out what is he doing? And he's pulling the attention. And there seems to be this moment where he is protecting her dignity, where he's taking the shame off her. He's taking all of the focus, all of the attention on himself. And it says that they're still clamoring in. It says in verse 7, when they kept on questioning him. So there's this idea as he's doing this, all of them are still pounding him. What are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do? And he's giving space and time, but he's also pulling attention away. He's preserving her while all of the attention comes on him. And finally, when he's ready, it says in verse 7, that he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So again, Jesus bends back down in the midst of turning this on them. There seems to be, again, Jesus is the ultimate protector of dignity. And there seems to be even a sense that not only was he protecting the woman at the beginning as he pulled all the attention, but again, as he has cast this back on this group of accusers, this group of men who've brought before him, they put him to a test that says they've used a person as a test. They've used a person to uphold the law. They've put someone on the line of life and death to prove a point, to set a trap. And he says, the first of you without sin, go ahead and throw that stone. There seems to be a real sense as he bends back down, all the eyes again are drawn to him. They're not any longer looking left to right to see who's going to do what, but all the eyes are drawn to him. And if you've ever been caught, you know the first place you want to look is down. You don't want to have to look back into the eyes of the one who's caught you. I've done this more time. I think about one of my parents all the times I'm caught. Parents are really good at catching us, aren't they? Um, And you just want space and you just need to consider it. And I think in this moment as their eyes are down and they start realizing what has been revealed to them. As they start looking in their own hearts, they start realizing even how they've taken this law, this beautiful law that God tried to give to protect his people and they've started to use it, to turn it back on them. They've tried to use it in the wrong way. In verse nine at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, till only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I thought about this again. They all go away. And how long did it take? One by one. I'm guessing this was not 
a quick thing where they all raced off one by one. Jesus is still stooped down. He's still bent down. He's still drawing the attention to himself. Yet now it's Jesus and the woman. And I've thought about this from her perspective. She's not yet in the clear because here's Jesus. He's a rabbi. He's the ultimate upholder of the law. He still has the law in his hands. And I can't imagine that her life is not yet spared in her head. She has no idea what's going to happen because he still has it on her side. He, she has still been caught in the act. Though the full law wasn't upheld, she's still there and her life is still on the line. And Jesus straightens up and asks her a question. And we've said this over and over again. Questions invite relationship. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. It's a very interesting statement here. No one, sir. Uh, the word sir in the Greek is kyrie, which I've been practicing saying and I probably still got wrong. It's K-Y-R-I-E, but it's the same word used as Lord. Over and over again, this word is used as Lord. And so there's a very real sense that possibly in this moment, she's saying no one, Lord. There's a very real sense in this moment, she's recognized him for who he truly is, the protector of her dignity, the protector of her life, the one who has come alongside her. There might even be this sense that she has accepted for the very first time who he is and what he means in her life, the step towards him, no one, Lord. And then he says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus' heart and character is on full display because this is also God's heart and character. That's why we're looking at these stories. We want to see an accurate picture of who God is. So we look at Jesus because he lives it out and we get to see it clearly. And here we see it so clearly. Forgiveness like nothing else arms believers against future willful sinning. This idea that this forgiveness that she's now had comes with a direction. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus has to hold intention. Two very careful things here. Because if he just upholds the law as they come to him and, and they say, the law says we're supposed to stone her, then his forgiveness, then the mercy and the grace that he's been talking about is put aside. Yet if he just forgives her, he diminishes the power of sin, the consequence, the seriousness of sin, the law that he says he has come to fulfill. But he doesn't do either. He doesn't diminish the grace and he doesn't diminish the sin. He holds both so strongly because in the moment where he says, neither do I condemn you, the full display of grace is there. The full forgiveness. I mean, her life, again, moments before she was on the brink of death. Now, most of us have not been quite that far into the sin world, into the part where we've been on the actual physical brink of death. Some have, and some of you haven't. Some of you have told the stories. But here she is in the feel, the full weight of the forgiveness that happened. This is a grace that brings life real life to her. She is alive to continue forward, but it still acknowledges that the sin is there. Go and sin no more because sin is serious. Sin is real. Sin is insidious. Sin has life and death consequences. I mean, her sin at this point, she was wrong. She was in the wrong. She was doing something she wasn't do. And the very real consequence of that in that moment was physical death. Yet the very real consequence of all sin is death. In Romans, it says the consequences of sin is death, is eternal separation from God, is to be forever without the one who's created us. Sin has real consequences. And we don't ever want to forget that. But also, grace has very real consequences. Grace has very real consequences of life. And true grace real grace that leads to life, the grace that she experienced, the grace that comes on the brink of death, the grace when we know fully how serious our sin is, leads us not to sin more, but to sin no more. 
the grace that gives us life propels us forward to want to live a life that is more obedient, that looks more and loves more like Jesus because we've been rescued because the ultimate rescue mission happened and it points us forward into a life that can look more like Jesus. Do we get it perfect? No, there's continual forgiveness that is offered throughout it. Yet the hope is that day after day after day that we would look more, that we would love more, that we'd act more like him because we do recognize the consequences of sin. But we also want to move more towards where grace leads. And I'll tell you, I think nothing does that more than relationship because the law, the law that was there didn't lead towards that. Yet this relationship with Jesus seems to lead towards that. This question that he asked, this invitation that he has, is no one here to condemn you? No one, sir. Then go and sin no more. There's a relationship. It's the same relationship Jesus offers us. And in the midst of that, there is hope, there is future, there is movement. What's really great about having a chance to read through this gospel reading too, if you've taken the opportunity, again, I would encourage you to do it, is to be able to see what's on both sides of the story. Because right after, the next verse is one of the most incredible claims that Jesus makes. Chapter 8, verse 12. He says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The next statement is one of the most majestic, one of the most clear statements Jesus makes about who he is. If you'll remember back in John 1, it's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's the telling of the story of who Jesus is. It's really the telling of the creation story all over again. It's a story in the past that I love to read at Christmas because it's just such a beautiful way, such a poetic way of talking about what's happened. I'm going to read the beginning, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I am the light of the world. The light shone very bright in this story because there was darkness all around. The darkness of a setup the darkness of using the law to entrap someone, the darkness of a woman's sin, the darkness of using a person to try to trap Jesus, the darkness of the religious leader's sin, the brokenness of the law. Yet Jesus' light shone so bright because he was able to hold both intention, both the seriousness of what's happening, but also offer the grace that only he can offer. We don't know the rest of the woman's story. It ends there in the story of go and sin no more, but there seems to be a step as I read this story, there seems to be such a clear step that she takes towards him, that maybe for the very first time in this, yes, Lord, that maybe for the first time she has seen something revealed to her and she is taking a step towards Jesus. And maybe she leaves that sin and has the light of the world in her. Maybe for the first time she has real life and is able to walk forward for the rest of her life, knowing that she has not only seen it, but now has life and is able to continue to live forward. Because real life is living in the grace and the forgiveness that leads us to sin no more. And she heard it so clearly from the one who came. Kaylee said something last week, and it's one of her statements that she makes at Regroup, and I love it because I think it's so true. Uh, Our sin and our obedience never affect just us. Our sin and our obedience never affect only us. They affect all around us, both our sin and our obedience. The ripple effects these have not only affect just our lives, but those around us immediately in our families, but also generations to come. And I wonder what the ripple effect of that morning was on the woman as she walked forward, on those guys who came and brought her as they realized what they had just seen, the ripple effect of that, the fact that we're still studying this 2,000 years later. 
And that offer was made not just to the woman, but to the Pharisees. You see, Jesus in that moment gave that same offer of life to the men who were trying to set him up. One of the beautiful things about Jesus, Jesus cares about all. So where are you? Where are you in the midst of the story? Um, if you have not yet received that offer of God's grace, that's an offer to you today. I hope you see the dignity with how Jesus handles people in the midst of this. I hope you see God's heart on display for those who are broken, those who are still far away, those who are still in the midst of doing the wrong things that are caught in the midst of the sin that's there. He's for the woman, but he also doesn't take the sin lightly. In a moment, she's forgiven. Jim, a couple of weeks ago, talk, talked about that. In a moment, life can change. We can have new life enter into us. But yet, she's told to sin no more, this hint towards a lifelong process of looking more and loving more like Jesus. And the thing is, you are invited into that. And today, we would love to invite you into that if you've never taken the time to consider that. But for those of us who are on the other side of that forgiveness, we were all the women at one point. We were all caught in sin. We were all living on the brink of death. And I think one of the traps, one of the hard parts is as time goes by, it gets easy to forget that. It gets easy to forget as we live more and love more, as we continue to go to church, as we continue to follow along, it becomes easier and easier. It can, be, or can become easier to step into the judging crowd. It's easier to get to the other side and be so much quicker to point out the wrong in others instead of looking at what's going on in our own lives. We can know what's right so deeply, but we can be tempted to point it out in others instead of dealing with it in ourselves, instead of returning the grace. Sometimes, um, I think we can use the Christian version of it's herbal. Uh, we can be right, but do it in such the wrong way. So how might that look? What are some of the ways that we're it's herbal to those that are outside of the church? I think one of those ways that we can do that is just letting people know when you just say you're a sinner without offering any hope on the other side of that. Here's the thing. People know they're broken. People know that they're sinning. People know that their life is not working the way it should they have plenty of people shouting at them from a distance that you are messed up. There's something wrong with you. You are not welcome. But very few have people inviting them into a relationship or have someone telling them, you know what, I was there and I found a way out. Let me tell you about it. There's something so different about shouting and throwing a rock and inviting in and drawing close to those. That's why I love Brad and Kami that you are in the midst of people and drawing close to them to love them. It's why we send people. It's why we encourage the church that we go and work alongside of people to remind them of who they are and the dignity they have. But here's the thing. It's doubtful that it's so directed most of us. Few of us intentionally go out of our way to be its herbal people to those that are outside. But maybe uh, for some of us, it's that people know that we're followers of Jesus and they follow us on Facebook or they listen to our conversations at work or they listen to us when we think no one's listening. And by the things we post or the way we take stances on things, it makes it clear that to those that are still far from God uh, that they aren't welcome. Um, you know, it's not wrong to have opinions, to have deeply held beliefs, but how are we holding them? How are they being shared? How are we carrying them to the world around us? Um, and it's not just to those that are outside the church. I think as time goes on, we can become part of a judging crowd right here inside the walls of church. Part of what we're called to is unity. Part of what we're called to is to love one another. And sometimes it's easier, and I think a little bit even sometimes more insidious and less obvious because kind of it's a low grade, it's herbal to those that are right next to us all the time. I texted a few people, some that are in vocational ministry, many of them are just followers of Jesus, and said, how does this look in your life? And the responses were very quick um, because I think everyone has felt this at one time or another, being judged by someone who's sitting next to them or that is walking along the same way. Things like, oh, you spent your money on that? Oh, you bought that car? Or, hmm, you're not homeschooling? Or, 
mm, you're homeschooling, insert either one. Um, if you just trusted God more, maybe your finances would be better. Um, someone sent me, God works for all things together for the good of those who love him is inaccurately shared as all things happen for a reason in response to someone sharing a tragedy or a hardship. Um, oh, you're depressed that you prayed about that or anything else that seems to minimize mental illness. And here's one of the ones I think we can all relate to. You're that political party. And really you can insert either one at this point and you call yourself a Christian. Listen, not all of these are fully wrong. The judging crowd wasn't fully wrong either. They had part of the law on their side. They just weren't right in the right way. Uh, they were lying in wait to prove a point, to point to their own rightness and to trap Jesus. And sometimes our next right step is to share the truth and love. I loved Kaylee's message last week. If you didn't get a chance to hear it, I would encourage you to listen to it because sometimes our next right step is to share the truth and love with those around us. And it might be the most helpful thing we do. But I believe what's being revealed in this story is the first step to understanding if and how we share that truth. Because where does being right take us? Does it lead us to throwing stones or does it lead us to repentance? Does it lead us to pointing out everybody else or does our first step go back to know, I need to examine myself. I need to come before the Lord. I need to repent of what's going on before I do anything. When Jesus a second time stooped down and again was writing some more on the ground asking his incriminating question to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders who brought here, the redundance suggests that Jesus may now be trying to avert the crowd's critical attention from the accused's accusers and from their shame, just as he had earlier sought to protect the woman from her shame and shamers. Jesus is the consummate protector of persons. He seems to care as much about the crowd as the person. And if you are here today and you've been part of that crowd, if you have found yourself moving towards that direction, Jesus cares about you. He's not done with us yet. This is all a process. It's the rest of our life that we continue to move towards him. The other day, Andy, who's my six-year-old, was asking, why do we have pain? Why do things hurt? Right? Which is a very honest question for a six-year-old. She had gotten a boo-boo. And uh, I love that, actually, Kelly, you taught this at your seminar a while back about radar, about that different parts of our life, that pain is a radar. It is a helpful signal to stop doing something that can cause further harm. When something starts to hurt, when you have fear, there's these different radars that have been built into our lives. And pain is one of those radars that lets us know to stop in the same way having our sin revealed to us is a radar. It can lead us down a path to shame. It can lead us to farther away, or it can lead us back to the cross. It can lead us back to Jesus and into repentance. We have an opportunity today um, to take the stones that you are handed on your way in and choose what you want to do with them. Because the thing is, we all have the truth, or at least we have access to it, and we have that with us. And what are you going to do with it? Are you going to take it and throw it, hopefully not at me, Um, or we have a chance to drop our stones and to go back to the table, to go to the cross, to go to the one who has offered us forgiveness. Because the first step back in is is going back to that first place, to be reminded of that we were the one, we were the woman caught in adultery. We were the ones who were caught in our sin, to be reminded of the grace that Jesus offered us that leads us into more life. Before we share that truth, before we're right in that way, to go back to the table, to go back to the one to examine our own hearts, and then to walk humbly towards those that need truth. I'll tell you, I have been corrected many times over my life, and they've been helpful in many ways, but the ones that have been the most helpful have been when people come alongside and say, listen, I don't have this right either, but I've been praying about this, and, and, and I feel like we need to talk about this. The ones that have not gone so right is, you're wrong, right? Like That doesn't seem to go quite as well, though it might still be true. Coming to the table reminds us that we are all sinners in need of grace. So this time I'm going to invite the band to come on stage. 
And we're going to have a moment to come to the table. And this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, even this very morning, if you've taken that claim, I'd invite you to participate in this meal with us because this is God's table. It's not summits. This is a table that has been set thousands of years ago as a table that reminds us that we have all been caught in sin. We are all on that side. We all need grace and we all need to be reminded that this is where it leads, that when we are reminded of our brokenness, that there is a God who loves us so much that he went to a cross and died for us and came back to life to offer us life. There's a God who sat there and said, no one is condemning you. Go and sin no more. This table invites us back in. It brings us back to the cross, but then sends us out with a reminder to go and to look more and love more like him, to give us the nourishment, both physically and spiritually to do that.